Welcome to the Human Experience Podcast, the only podcast designed to fuse your left and right brain hemispheres and feed it the most entertaining and mentally engaging topics on the planet. As we approach our ascent, please make sure your frontal, temporal and occipital lobes are in their full upright position. As you take your seat of consciousness, relax your senses and allow us to take you on a journey. We are the Intimate Strangers. Thank you for listening. Ladies and gentlemen, the human experience is live. Welcome. Thank you so much for being here. My name is Xavier Katana. Very happy to be here tonight. We've got a tremendous show planned for your beautiful faces this evening. We are multicasting. If you are looking for everywhere we are live, if you want to leave us a review on iTunes, if you want to support the show, simply go to allmylinks.com slash thehumanxp. We certainly do appreciate your contributions. It allows us to make the show better for you, our listeners. But word of mouth is how we grow. So if you're able to recommend the show to your friends, your family, that is the highest compliment that you can give us. But let's cut to the chase. Tonight, we're going to be looking at the science of astrology. We're going to be getting into whether or not our destiny is printed in the heavens above with one of the most credentialed authors that we've had on this show. So please go grab a drink, sit back, and enjoy this conversation. The Human Experience is in session. My name is Xavier Katana. My guest for tonight is Dr. Alexander Boxer. Alex is a data scientist and author who revels in the ways that ancient and modern science can both be used to provide insights into our lives. Alexander has a PhD in physics from MIT, a master's degree in the history of science from Oxford, and a bachelor's in classical language from Yale. His work has appeared in Nature Physics Journal, and he was also a field agent for Atlas Obscura. Alexander is the author of A Scheme of Heaven a book in which he takes a look back at the history of astrology, merging his love for numbers and past events with a desire to learn more about how we can predict the future, both in the past and right now. Alex, it's a pleasure. Thank you for making the time to do this. Welcome to HXP. Of course, it's a thrill to be here. Yeah, Alex, I mean, I'm I'm so thoroughly impressed by your credentials. I, it's it's one of the main reasons I think I brought you onto this program because, you know, how does a person go from, you know, a, a physics degree in at MIT to writing a book about astrology? Well, well, first, let me say that uh, I, I'm pleased that you brought up my credentials and I'm pleased that you're impressed by my credentials. But one of the themes throughout my book is that it's important to answer these questions for yourself. And a lot of this book was my own personal journey of wanting to know more about astrology and what astrology really is. I've always been interested in history. I've always been interested in numbers. I've always been interested in the history of science. And so in a way, Astrology was sort of a natural topic because I think in order to tell the story properly, you need to have that sort of eclectic background in ancient and also uh, mathematics and numbers. 
I look at astrologers as the original data scientists. That's one of the arguments I make in the book that there's uh, that those of us who were involved in making predictive models today are, are are actually, whether they like to admit it or not, part of a much longer tradition of gathering data, looking at data, and trying to make sense of it. Hmm. And I started to feel this, you know, kind of a deep sympathy towards the people who were almost single-handedly for, for, for hundreds, if not thousands of years doing this. Uh, and, and, and those were the astrologers. And I just wanted to know more about it. And the more I read about it, the more I came to the question of, if you really want to know about astrology, who do you ask? What books do you read? Do you read books by modern astrologers? Do you read books by uh, astronomers, historians? And I, I found that I just had a bunch of questions that none of these books were answering. Mm-hmm. And sort of true to this idea that, you know, you don't, need to, you don't need to listen to other people to make up your mind, although, it, you know, it's always good to get as many opinions as possible. I, I just dove into it myself. Hmm. And I, I hope that I, I wrote something that, that's informative, that takes a totally different approach, uh, and that is, is also fun. And I really hope that all of your readers, whether you're interested in astrology, intrigued by astrology, whether you don't like astrology at all, you think it's bunk, uh, there's something in here for, for everyone. Sure. I mean, was there a part of you that wanted to legitimize astrology as a science in some way? I mean, because I I find that, you know, I mean, there there it seems like there are two veins of thought or thinking here. You know, when when a person thinks about astrology, I think they either dismiss it completely or, you know, they're they're sort of all about it. You know, and especially I think especially recently people are digging into, you know, more about the connection of the stars and the placement of the stars at the time of our birth. And I mean, it, more of the younger crowd, the millennial crowd. But you know, I mean, was was there a part of you that that wanted to, you know, make make this recognized as a science? Well, so let me answer that question in, in two ways, or, or maybe I'll break it up historically. So one, as far as astrology, as, as let's call it the science is concerned, I had no particular opinion. It seems, uh, you know, I come from a scientific background. Uh, astrology is the arch pseudoscience. There's just nothing more heretical you can do <laughs> than, than even bring it up in conversation. Sure. And to me, as sort of a contrarian, that, that almost made it kind of interesting to, to study. Uh, what sort of occurred to me, however, was that uh, a lot of the predictive models that we make today are, let's say, no better than than astrology. It, you don't even have to have a particularly long memory to just even remember the 2016 election where, you know, all of these fancy mathematical models had uh, a particular candidate winning with 70, 80, sometimes high 90 percent probability. That, of course, did not happen. There was the financial crisis and the housing collapse of 2008, which all of the fanciest models said you know, would never happen. House prices would never go down. So, so part of me was fascinated by this idea that we're part of this long tradition of making, um, let's say, very dubious but very complicated mathematical models. And why are we so attracted or why do we put so much faith in in, in, in these sorts of numbers and these sorts of models? So uh, – I have no particular, uh, and and let me just put my cards on the table. Uh, I don't believe in astrology. Uh, I'm not an astrologer, and, and in my investigations of sort of looking at this stuff, there was nothing in in particular I found that changed that opinion. On the other hand, I have 
I wanted to maybe develop a deeper respect for the astrologers, the astrologers of the past Mm -hmm. who really were sort of pushing forward the field of, uh, let's just call it data science Mm -hmm. back at a time when, you know, it was the idea that you could describe the world uh, with numbers has always been, I think, a much more controversial view than than we moderns give it credit for. And I think the fact that nowadays we are so, you know, we unthinkingly put trust in numbers speaks to the success of that that revolution where we've come to realize that numbers really are very powerful in describing, um, you know, who we are and where we are. So, uh, uh, you know, part of it is, let's just say that there, there's nothing crazy about the idea of astrology. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a perfectly plausible premise, or at least it seems so to me. There's, you know, I don't, uh, it, it really rubs me the wrong way when people just, just totally dismiss it out of hand. Right. It seems interesting. And what it also seemed to me was that people really haven't studied astrology from an empirical point of view. All of the arguments that you traditionally hear against astrology are, are sort of theoretical. Well, astrology has to be garbage because, you know, there's no there's no way we could describe about how it could work. We know that there's no forces that are raised that are coming from planets, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And, you know, from a scientific point of view, I, I, I find that a very weak argument that there's many things that people have said could never be true, which, mm-hmm. you know, ended up, uh, you know, being being true. So the idea that um, we should dismiss it because the arguments, the theoretical arguments against it are are, are what they are. Um, yes, that's it's it's a compelling argument. It's an important argument, but it's not the whole story. And 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 part of me, as a numbers guy, wanted to just look at the numbers. Mm-hmm. And realistically, a lot of that's never really been done because it's very hard to do. You need a lot of data. You need a lot of uh, fairly precise birth data, and just a lot of information of the sort that is is really now sort of becoming accessible, but even now is very hard to get, to get a hold of. And so part of the book was, was an attempt to, you know, put aside all the arguments for and against, and, and let's just look at the data. Okay, fair enough. I love that. I mean, two, one of the points that you made about, you know, the planetary bodies and their effects on us, maybe, I mean, if you, if you just look at the moon, it's, it's right there and look at the effect that it has on the tide. I mean, the earth is mostly water, the humans are mostly water. So how can you say, you know, there is not some effect that planets in the heavens have some effect on us? But, you know, what what I want to do is, if we can, Alex, is if we can define what does it mean when someone is giving you your horoscope or when someone is saying, you know, your sign is this, what, how, do, how can we define, you know, what they're doing with those couple things? <laughs> so maybe, maybe I'm 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 setting a template for answering questions in a long way. But let me just say that uh, again, because of my interest in history and because astrology is so old, I I'm very suspicious of of let's say answers that that answered in a particular way. I want to know what do those words mean? Let's say as a function of time, what what did they originally mean? And so that was one of the most fun, or one of the more fun things uh, about the book was even tracking down what the word horoscope means. Hmm. So, uh, you know, today we might refer to a horoscope as simply the one paragraph little blurb you, uh, you might read in, you know, in a magazine or on a website. You, I, I'm a Taurus and, you know, maybe I'd read a blurb about what I should be, you know, how I should be setting my mind or my intentions for the week. And that would be a horoscope. But uh, historically, a horoscope would refer to, um, you know, uh, 
not only the interpretations, but it would be a chart of the heavens as they appeared at a specific moment in time, as viewed from a specific place. Mm. And this is actually where the title of my book comes from. My book is called The Scheme of Heaven. And so a horoscope uh, was occasionally and colorfully referred to as a scheme of heaven, uh, a scheme being a graphical blueprint. But I love the sort of play of words that you know, there's also the scheme and how you're supposed to interpret this numerical and graphical information. Mm-hmm. But if you track the word even further back, uh, the word horoscope is a Greek word, and it means the, you know, the, the hour watcher or, or really the moment watcher. And, you know, the Greeks have these, these different concepts of time. You know, there's, there's hora and then there's, there's chronos, words like chronology. And hora is really referring to sort of a season or, or, or a moment. And so somebody's watching these moments uh, come and, and a horoscope uh, could refer to the individual astrologer. They're sometimes referred to as horoscopes in the ancient uh, texts. Um, it could refer to the, the instruments that are uh, essentially tracking the motions of the sky. Those are horoscopic instruments. Or it could refer to, you know, the, the writing down the where the planets were at that given time. And what's quite interesting is that in the context of traditional astrology, you divide the sky above you into what are called the 12 houses of heaven. Mm-hmm. And the most important one, which uh, modern people uh, probably are also aware of, is the ascendant. This is the part of the sky which shows, you know, the stars, planets, or, you know, sun, the moon, when they're rising just above your eastern horizon. Well, uh, you know, so in, in, in English, that's called the ascendant. But what's fascinating is that uh, the ancient Greek term for that is the horoscope. So really, from an astrological point of view, I would say the horoscope is the part of the sky uh, which is on your eastern horizon. And that was considered to be, from a, from let's say, a cosmic ray point of view, the most important. These were the ones that had the strongest influence on you. Hmm. Huh. It's fascinating. I love your thoroughness and you know how you're looking at the breakdown of words and what they mean, the origins of them. Was there, you know, was there a specific place uh, or type of astrology that you, that was a focal point for you? Um, you know, I mean, there are different systems of astrology depending on where you go, right? Absolutely. And, and so one of the, astrology is such a huge topic, uh, which is again, you know, I think one of the challenges of, of writing a book about astrology is, you know, not what do you say, but what do you leave out? And so the way I structured my book is that it's sort of, it's structured really around a set of very basic questions that, that I had about astrology. You know, things like when did astrology first arise? How many, you know, horoscopes can there possibly be? Uh, you know, basic questions like this. And I then divided the book up historically where I sort of go back to, let's say, uh, the earliest time where astrologers have had, had tried to answer this question. And for me, one of the reasons I've always liked the history of science is well, one, I think history is fascinating, but two, I've always felt that I couldn't, I could only understand a scientific concept if I kind of understood where it come, where it came from, how it, how it evolved, and and, and what, let's say, the original, uh, you know, people who, who produced some sort of difficult, complicated concept. What question were they trying to answer? Usually, it's a simple question that people were trying to answer that that led to something a little bit more complicated. But one thing I do in the very beginning of the book is, is I recuse myself from, uh, from, um, from Hindu and Chinese astrology. Hmm. It's just not, uh, I, I believe in being true to the source material and I just, because of my background, I feel like I have, uh, an access to, 
the ancient astrological texts, most of which are in Greek, uh, many of them are in Latin. And you know, there's just something that you know, if I have a question, I can go directly to the source. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's definitely something I could I I, I could not do with um, Indian or, or Chinese astrology, even though it's particularly with the case of Indian astrology, there's there's a, a tremendous amount of of cross fertilization and overlap. But um, I really wanted to focus the book on on I guess what's oftentimes called Western astrology, which starts in uh, ancient Babylonia. Uh, really comes of age in in let's say Hellenistic the Hellenistic Greek speaking world. We're talking like uh, you know where uh, Alexandria in Egypt. I think what was sort of a surprise to me was really how much astrology as we know it today really found its form in in Roman times and how much of it really owes its character to the Roman Empire. And then of course it then spreads out uh, ends up you know, having a, a, a tremendous flowering in, in, you know, Arab and, and Persian speaking lands, and then comes back into Europe. And, you know, then, of course, has a tremendous transformation, really around the 20th century, where it sort of changes into the more mystical form that, that I imagine most people know it as today. Hmm. Okay, very fascinating. I really like that, you know, you sort of uh, step back from an area that you thought you weren't as well versed in and focused, you know, more of where you could access information directly, as you said. Um, you know, I'm, I'm curious to know, you know, people, people tend to make stories of their lives, you know, we, and we want to sort of discern as much as possible, you know, love, money. And, and I, I think, you know, we're looking to predict the future in some way, right? So we, we want to know kind of how it, it matters to me. How is this important to, you know, my life and what I'm doing, which is probably why a person reads their horoscope, you know, in the first place. Maybe it's some sort of narcissistic tendency that they also have as well. But, you know, you know, where, where does this come from? I mean, we, you know, we're, when we're looking at the sky, um, you know, humans are pattern making machines, right? So how did you, re- how did we, start to reduce the stars in the sky into a system that we could understand and then use as a predictive factor of, of our lives? So th- these are great questions. I don't know if I have the answer, but you know, merely what I tried to do in the book is to, to just to denote this. And this is also speaks very much to um, my starting point for the book. Uh, I, I am a data scientist and, and I am very interested in how you use numbers and, and figures to tell a story. If I've done my job correctly, then I can really make a persuasive case that, you know, somebody ought to do X, Y, or, or, or Z by, you know, showing a really compelling graph or, or showing some numbers. And we take this for granted nowadays. It's almost the, the rhetorical trump card when you're when you're debating or making an argument, you show us you show statistics or you show um, you know a, a numerical fact. And I I kind of was just interested in this idea that uh, we we sort of take for granted today the the storytelling power of numbers, but that really wasn't always the case. And that really looking back, uh, it's it's sort of astrologers for both good and for ill who are pioneering this idea of making a persuasive story with numbers. And, you know, this is this idea that, well, there's certain questions that, that I'm interested in, you know, you're interested in, uh, you know, 
what what what's in store for me, my family, my love life, my my financial life, and it's totally not obvious why the planet should have anything to do with that. But somehow, if you if you weave it in the right way, it can be a very very compelling story you can tell. That ah, don't you remember that period in the in, in the past where where something happened? Well, you know, uh, Jupiter was was you know in the third house or or something or or maybe more. Um, you know, maybe maybe a more familiar example would be, you know, don't you just think that that Scorpios are nuts? They're just crazy. We all know it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and, and, you know, this this sort of, you know, inherent pattern making where, you know, uh, I, I'm interested in the idea that, yes, like people people like to see patterns. And 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 by the way, one example I have in my book is computers uh, are, are bad are can it's called overfitting. But a lot of these models that people make. They, they, they latch onto a pattern, whether the pattern is meaningful or not. And, and so, you know, if you're, t- if you're training, a let's say a computer vision model to see dogs or cats and you, you, you train it, um, too much, let's say it'll start to see dogs and cats everywhere, even sure. in things that, that are not a dog or a cat. And, and so this idea of when is a pattern, a pattern, and when are you deceiving yourself, I think is a, is a question that is at the core of astrology. And is something that has it by no means gone away. In fact, as we use numbers more and more in in our politics, in our you know in our day to day lives, all, you know, all these algorithms that are telling us do this, do that. I recommend this. I recommend that. Um, you know, we we need to we need to be responsible. Let's say data consumers. All of us are data consumers now, and and recognize how easy it is to, to, to see patterns where there's not. And so the, the, the science, but also the art of, you know, determining what, what, what's really a pattern and, 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 and what's not is something that I find fascinating. And, and again, astrology is the, the pioneer here. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I find it truly fascinating. I, and I, it, it is really interesting. I mean, you talk about how, we can look at past events and where the planets were in the sky to confirm different stories that were told. Uh, you mentioned uh, the biblical e- eclipse and the ninth plague. And, and I mean, this tells you, I mean, you can match up, you know, was there an eclipse at this time? And, you know, does this story connect, right? Yes. And so from a storytelling point of view, you know, at some point, all stories are are valid. You know, they they bring new ideas into your mind. They bring new connections into your mind. Um, and and so one thing that I was so excited by in the book is I, uh, you know, the book is told historically, and astrology is really about the science of moments. Um, you know, being in a particular time at a particular place. And so each of my chapters uh, focus on is focuses on a, a particular moment in time and place that was important to the the story I wanted to tell. And so what I wanted to do is that for each of those moments, I wanted to show what the configuration of the stars and planets were at that time and at that place. And, um, and so I do this for, for, for every chapter. And by the way, the, and and so that, which is to say that I make a scheme of the heavens for uh, each of these chapters for the time and place. And the way I do this, by the way, is I adopt the style of one of my favorite ancient astronomical instruments, which is an astrolabe. And so I, I use this sort of beautiful ancient way to, to show this. And so the question then becomes, how early in time can you actually know uh, what the stars and planets looked like? 
And, you know, because not only do the records get poor, but also, you know, there are just certain unknowns primarily about actually the uneven slowing down of the Earth's rotation, which can be another topic of conversation. But it's actually very tricky to to know um, deep into the past what the what the stars and planets looked like. And this is why eclipses are so important, because those are moments where uh, we know from our astronomical computations when they happened. Mm -hmm. And so if there is a historical record that matches up, then we can say, ah, that happened at this precise date at this precise time. Now, it turns out that this sounds nice, but there's really not that many. There's, or rather the, the historical record of eclipses doesn't go back maybe as far as maybe I wanted it to go. It goes back pretty far. Um, you know, the, the Babylonians in particular have this incredible record of astronomical data, including eclipses that goes back to about 700 BC. It's extraordinary. But um, I then sort of flipped the question around and I, I asked myself, all right, well, we know when all these eclipses occurred and, and we know which part of the earth they could have been seen over. Uh, could I just choose a particularly impressive eclipse and say that it's very likely that that would have been seen at the time. Mm -hmm. And it turned out that as I was looking through uh, NASA, by the way, puts out this really wonderful, um, they, they call it the, the canon of solar eclipses. It's got this wonderful name mm -hmm. and it's, you know, thousands of years of eclipses with their maps and, and, um, you can look through it and it turns out there's this, uh, in, in, very, very, um, intense solar eclipse that happened over Egypt in the, the 14th century BC. And in fact, it happened uh, at a very specific date in, in, in the year 1338 BC. And it, it, it basically, uh, and by, by impressive, I mean that of all the solar eclipses that have happened over the last several thousand years, it was the, it was the 12th largest in magnitude. Exactly what that means I can go into, but let's just say that this was a big eclipse, a big solar eclipse. I don't know how many of your listeners saw the the solar eclipse of 2017, but yeah, th this this was a you know the tot the path of totality and the duration of totality mm. would have been very impressive, and this would have happened all over ancient Egypt. Mm -hmm. And in, and what was so fascinating is that the and again we you know these these things you know the ancient egyptian chronologies are a little unclear or you know the the dating of them is always has a little bit of uncertainty to it but mm. by the best chronologies that we have the pharaoh who was pharaoh at this time was a pharaoh named akhenaten and akhenaten is uh extremely famous from a historical point of view because well one the the art that's from his time is radically different and the art and the reason the art is radically different is because he made a radical break with Egyptian tradition. And in, 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 he actually adopted a new religion, one that was not going to be based on many gods, but was going to be based on just one god. Uh, and in particular, this god was the sun. And this was, you know, such a tremendous discovery when it was made, uh, you know, when, when these sort of archaeological ruins were discovered. And, and in particular, there was this wonderful book by Sigmund Freud, called Moses and Monotheism. And it's, it's this wonderful book. It's short. Um, and it's just one of those books that I, I, I remember reading it and like every page blew my mind. And I didn't agree with, I don't agree with everything that he says, but it's just one of those books that's just amazing to read because your head explodes reading it. But he makes this, he makes this argument that, uh, you know, uh, well, really Moses, um, you know, of course, is, is, it must be an Egyptian. Why? Because, well, his name's an Egyptian name. 
you know, Moses, you know, a lot of the pharaohs, you know, have names like, you know, Tut Moses or, you know, uh, Moses um, is, is just an Egyptian name. And he says, yes, uh, you know, Moses was an Egyptian. And he, and he goes even further and says, not only that, he was probably a, a, a priest follower of this pharaoh Akhenaten. And when Akhenaten's revolution, religious revolution failed, this, this Egyptian Moses uh, leads uh, you know, which carries on the monotheistic revolution and he leads the, you know, the Israelite people and he sort of founds this new religion, namely the, the, the Jewish religion. And, and by the way, I thought this is a fun example for tonight because of this is, of course, the second night of Passover, mm-hmm. so the history of the Exodus. So again, the way that, um, you know, and if anyone, uh, you know, goes to their, their Passover Seder, right, you know, the obligation is to tell the story of the Exodus. So, you know, here we are talking about the Exodus just because um, we're thinking, talking about astrology and eclipses and, and, and eclipses. Now, looking at the chronology, however, um, this eclipse that I'm interested in happens really right before Akhenaten's death. Um, it doesn't quite fit in with Freud's story. And it occurred to me that there's probably like there's this much more interesting story, right, that uh, wouldn't it make even more sense that this radical pharaoh, this this pharaoh who doesn't know Joseph, as it said in the Bible, is Akhenaten, that essentially Freud has it exactly right, but totally backwards at the same time, that yes, these events are happening at this time. And what do we know about this time? We know that this revolution uh, was a disaster. There's, you know, that that as soon as Akhenaten dies, um, the Egyptians cannot go back to the old ways fast enough. And I think that th- like w- what kind of signal would it send if you have, let's say, this sort of, uh, you know, crazy megalomaniacal pharaoh worshiping the sun and all of a sudden you have this incredible dark solar eclipse? Mm-hmm. Uh, would would how would you interpret that at the time? Um you know, would would you see this as a sign that, you know, he had he had angered the old gods? Would you see it as a sign that, you know, there's, of course, so many ways you can interpret it. And let's not forget the interpretation that maybe nobody saw it because it was cloudy that day. Mm-hmm. Again, you just don't know. There's no records. Or maybe there is a record and that is just kept in the, let's say, the folk memory as the ninth plague, the plague of darkness amongst what is widely considered to be sort of a um, – a very dark time in Egyptian history, sort of a, 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 a collapse, let's say, you know, that as this radical pharaoh is, is rushed off the scene, you know, there's, there's a lot of chaos. And would not this be sort of the perfect moment for the, let's say, the historical backdrop of, of the story of, of the Exodus? So mm-hmm. I try to speculate as little as possible in the book. I really wanted to focus on the facts, but I just couldn't help myself with this eclipse because uh, it was just such a fascinating find to me that um, isn't it just great that, you know, here you can look at the astronomical data and immediately be sucked into this, you know, wild story, this wonderful story that what maybe this does connect with things that are just so deeply important in how we see ourselves and, and, and our history. And, you know, again, that's just the larger theme of astrology itself. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's it's so fascinating to me just to learn about all this. But I mean, I... I enjoy absorbing as much information as, as I can about everything possible. So, I mean, but I mean, you talk, you talk about chrono craters. Am I saying that correctly? Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, if we're looking at the different spans of time, certainly this depends heavily on, you know, the ability to track records. But did you, did you, were you able to connect, uh, you know, did you see any patterns in, 
in repeating events, uh, disasters, whatever it may be, I mean, did you notice that? And also, you know, what if you could go into what a, a chrono crater is and and how you use that to, you know, determine. I think you you start to mention how the days of the week link to the planets. So let's get into those two things, please. <laughs> So astrology is such a fun topic, isn't it? Because you can just go in so many different directions at once. And I, I, I want to answer this question in 20 different ways at once. So let me answer uh, your question about do these things correlate with disasters, et cetera, et cetera. And the answer is, of course they do. Um, but let me return to that. Um, so a coronocrater, uh, it, it's, it's a Greek word that means, um, and I love this, it, it means time lord. Um, so I don't know how many of your, your, your followers are Doctor Who fans like I am, but you know. <laughs> Let's say it's the ancient Greek word for a time lord. Um, now, earlier I spoke about the word horoscope, and I mentioned how in ancient Greek you actually have these two notions of time, hora being one of them, which is like a moment. Chronos is the other one, and and we're familiar with chronos from the word chronology. And by the way, we're familiar with the word krator, ruler, from words like democracy, which is the rule of the people. Mm-hmm. So uh, uh, a chronocrator would be uh, you know a time ruler or a time lord. Um, he's sort of the you know the astrological concept of a of a ruler this idea that there's a planet or a star or a or maybe a configuration of planets or stars that's uh, influencing or ruling over a specific moment or a specific uh place or a specific you know uh you know field of of, of life let's say and um so one uh you know and of course as as you mentioned the idea of tracking the chrono you know which planet or star or configuration is, is ruling at a given moment was the job of the, the astrologers, these people who are tracking the horoscopic moments. And this is essentially the beginning of a lot of science, certainly the beginning of a lot of, uh, you know, data-driven numerical science because, you know, the there's a demand to know this stuff accurately because, of course, you know, it's complicated and and the idea being that, you know, you might get it wrong if you're, if you're slightly off. So, um, you know, how do the chronocraters, uh, you know, the example, how do they influence our lives to this day? Well, well, one example I give is, of course, in the names of the days of the week. So, um, of course, our week, you know, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, um, it's clear from an English point of view that maybe two of the days have something to do with the planets, Sunday and, and Monday, the, the day, Sunday, the day of the sun, Monday, the day of the moon. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, if, if you speak a romance language like Spanish or French or, or Italian, you know that the rest of the days of the week, of course, are following the same um, the same pattern that, um, you know, they're all named after or after planets. And in fact, um, I, I would this idea of an astrological week becomes the de facto week in the Roman Empire. And again, this is it's really in, in Roman times where astrology really hits its stride and really spreads around um, um, the world, uh, you know, quite extraordinarily. And um, I make the claim that uh, why do we even have a seven-day week today? Well, uh, you know, the, the, the Jews and the Christians liked a seven-day week. But, you know, there's no particular reason to have a seven-day week. Uh, it's it's one of the time intervals that we have that's actually not based in a natural cycle. Hmm. We have months, which are, you know, originally based around the moon. You know, even the word month has the word moon in it. Right. We have the year, which is you know, supposed to track the sun. And we have other units of time, you know, days. Uh, but the week is actually 
an incredible invention because it is anyone can tell you the day of the week. You don't need mathematicians, astronomers, priests to tell you when a week begins and ends. Whereas in lunar um, calendars, you need somebody, and like the ancient Hebrew calendar, you need somebody to make the determination that a month has begun. And, and, and traditionally, at least in, in the Hebrew calendar, this would be done, um, this would be done by priests. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, you, if you're living far from the, the center, you don't know when a month has actually begun. It's, it's hard to tell time this way, whereas the week is a very, I would say it's a very liberating and democratic invention because anyone can tell you the day of the week. Now, where am I going? You don't need a seven-day week. The Egyptians had a 10-day week. The Romans had an eight-day week. But at some point, they adopted a seven-day week, and, and uh, they adopted it because two of the trendier creeds in the Roman Empire, namely Christianity and astrology, both wanted a seven-day week. And so you end up with this seven-day week, which has the name of the week, the, day, the name of the day of the week is the chronocrator of that day. And there's actually a fun system for why they jump around in the order they do, um, because it's actually the system was to order them in the order of the planets by hour. So there's a table in my book, and again, uh, I really hope that your um, your audience, your your listeners, will will go out and buy a copy of the book, A Scheme of Heaven. There's just there's just so many fun factoids like this in there. But if you go through the um, uh, the 24 hours of the day, seven days a week, and you you order them after the planets one day, you know one after the other, you end up with the strange system that we have where it jumps from the sun uh, to the moon to, uh, you know, to, 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 to Mars, to Mercury, to um, Jupiter and Venus, which is the order of the week that we have. And, and again, your Spanish speakers will, will know this. Um, and it's because you're ordering the planets, you're ordering the hours in order, and it causes the day of the week to jump like that. But this is a, this is a system that the, the Romans um, had adopted. And um, we have it to this day. It's the foundation for the week in um, in 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 um, all of the Western languages. And it's, of course, now the the Western week is is globally recognized. So it's a weird way in which astrology has left its imprint on our everyday life. Now you're asking me about, let's say, do these chronocraters, uh, you know, correlate with you know this, that, or the now, the other thing, right, that's, of course, the job of the astrologer to try and to try and tease this apart. And so, um, you know, one of the things I look at in my book is um, one of the most famous, let's say, ruling configurations, which um, is supposed to govern world events. And these are the successive conjunctions of Jupiter and Saturn, the two mm-hmm. biggest visible planets in the sky. Now, it turns out, um, for those of you who are interested, this year, 2020 is a Jupiter-Saturn conjunction year. Um, in fact, Jupiter and Saturn will come into their point of closest conjunction, uh, interestingly enough, on the exact day of the winter solstice this year, December 21st, is uh, when, and they will come into conjunction in the zodiac sign of Aquarius. Now, um, this theory that these Jupiter-Saturn conjunctions, and they, and they happen about every 20 years, um, are supposed to herald sort of major world upheavals. And this, you know, and, and not only that, the sort of the nature of the people is supposed to be kind of colored by what zodiac sign they're in. So I thought it's, um, um, you know, a fun little thing to point out that um, the Jupiter-Saturn conjunction was also thought to be associated with plagues. And in fact, um, 
the Black Plague, the most famous and deadly plague uh, of, of, of world history, at least as far as we know, wiped out one third of Europe in the 1300s. It was blamed on a Jupiter-Saturn conjunction, um, which also occurred in the zodiac sign of Aquarius. That conjunction had occurred in 1345. And um, this was considered... Um, the scientific consensus at the time. It was the medical faculty of Paris who in fact published this treatise saying that it was this conjunction that was responsible for the plague and that the plague would not subside until, you know, the the, the, the planets had uh, separated themselves far enough for this, you know, for this conjunction or this configuration to, to subside. And so I think it's fun to point out that uh, the same Jupiter-Saturn conjunction in Aquarius that was considered responsible for the Black Death is also happening right now in our time of coronavirus. Wow. But again, goes back to the question of how do you determine if something like this is a coincidence or not? And so um, actually there's a, a, a fun chapter in my book which I devote directly to this. And a lot of it comes down to um, – so actually there's actually this fascinating story again – I yeah, love no astrology because you just get to tease apart so many fascinating stories. But um, this was an analysis that was actually done by uh, none other than, let's say, America's, if not history's, most famous husband and wife cryptology team. And this is uh, William Friedman and Elizabeth Friedman. Now, these names aren't necessarily super well known, but, but William Friedman in particular uh, was the United States' most premier code breaker in World War I and World War II. He's the one who broke the, the, the Japanese diplomatic ciphers that, you know, let up that um, we essentially were able to read Japan's ciphers through much of World War II. Um, and so he's, uh, for reasons, you know, that I think have a lot to do with glamour, Alan Turing is sort of the, 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 the more famous version. He's the English equivalent. William Friedman is leading the effort here in the United States, and he oversees the creation of, um, after World War II, he oversees the creation of what's then the, the, the NSA, the National Security Administration. Um, so William Friedman, though, uh, had actually gotten his code-breaking start, uh, he and his, and his future wife, when they were hired by a very eccentric millionaire um, who was convinced that there was a secret code in the sonnets and plays of Shakespeare. And this was actually a very uh, popular theory uh, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and it's still popular today in, in certain circles. And the idea being that um, there were actually clues in Shakespeare's plays – oftentimes in the printing of different letters. And then if you took these letters um, together, they spelled out secret messages. Mm -hmm. And so he, he hired William Friedman, who I think at the time he had just graduated college as a plant scientist, to uh, – this is how he got his, his start in cryptology. And he sort of became almost the father of modern cryptology. But he, but he started with this problem of are there secret codes in the plays of William Shakespeare? Now, he ultimately concluded there were not, but he wrote this – he and his wife wrote this book uh, after they had retired from their, their long career of code breaking for the United States where they go back to this question and they sort of go through these, these – uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a form of cipher called steganography, which is the art of hiding a secret in plain sight. Mm -hmm. So whether, you know, you hide a secret message in a painting or a secret message in a play. So steganography, by the way, is still an active uh, uh, field in, in, in the cryptologic world. But we'll leave that, we'll leave that aside. And, and, and he comes up with this thing and he says, well, the problem with all of these 
let's say, hidden codes is that the people who claim to see them are not applying their rules rigorously, right? You can't, um, you know, in the case of the Shakespeare cipher, you can't like say skip a letter here or, or add a letter there or, or, or it's spelled incorrectly, but you, you, you know, Shakespeare's name spelled like weirdly with no vowels, you know, you can't sort of squint and look at it. It has to be consistent. Sure. And that was his rule number one. And rule number two was, um, you can't, by applying the same rules, come up with two different and oftentimes mutually exclusive answers. And so he famously would take some of these um, proposed ciphers and use them in, in different plays and show that, um, you know, he could he could read whatever message he wanted in the play to say not only was um, – say, Francis Bacon, the real author of Shakespeare's plays, but so was Theodore Roosevelt or Gertrude Stein or even William Friedman himself. He could essentially use these rules to read whatever he wanted. So um, we try the same thing with the Jupiter-Saturn conjunctions, right? So one, they, they, they sort of fail on both counts. So, so one, so actually, so right, let me give you a great example. Um, it turns out the last nine, nine consecutive Jupiter-Saturn conjunctions have all corresponded um, all the U.S. Pre- presidents who have either been assassinated, uh, died in office, or suffered a, a let's say, a near-death mishap. So, you know, you think about uh, Abraham Lincoln, uh, McKinley, Garfield, um, JFK, all of these, uh, you know, assassinations sort of line up with the Jupiter-Saturn conjunction, because again, they happen roughly every 20 years. Now, um, and, and so I have this chart in my book. But now the problem is, when is, you know, how do you determine what lines up? Because, of course, there's a lot of wiggle room, right? It doesn't have to line up exactly, right? Like, uh, you know, the, the conjunction before the death of Kennedy would have happened in, in, in 1961, but Kennedy is assassinated in 63. So, you know, you sort of end up with these scenarios where, like, it's, a, it's sort of a harbinger of bad news, but, but how long is the, the sort of sell-by date? And then, you know, um, the last Jupiter-Saturn conjunction was in the year 2000. Uh, you know, George W. Bush was not assassinated, or, but, he, but, he, but he did choke on a pretzel and he almost died. So, again, if you, if you, you can bend the rules. Okay. Um, <laughs> but, um, let's, but for rule number two is, you know, can you find other equally plausible correlations that line up with these things? And, of course, for something that happens every 20 years, uh, the answer is, of course, you can. You can come up with all sorts of stories, many of which are mutually contradictory of things that, let's say, line up with these conjunctions. And, and so the point being is that if you can do that, it sort of undermines the significance of any one correlation. So the one that I thought was the most fun, uh, also because it, it, it aligns exactly with the dates of Jupiter-Saturn conjunctions, is that every time, there's a, every year there's a Jupiter-Saturn conjunction – and in these precise year, I'm not talking about a year advance or a year behind. I'm talking about the precise year the New York Yankees win the pennant. Hmm. <laughs> so we'll see what happens. Uh, one, we'll see if baseball's even canceled this year. <laughs> but yeah. two, you know, maybe maybe I will scratch my head if indeed the Yankees uh, um, actually make it to the World Series this year. But yes, we can. If they do, then I will say, well, of course, it was because of the conjunction. Huh. I mean, it's absolutely incredible, and I'm I'm so glad that you took. It there because I think that is my favorite part in your book is the Jupiter and of, of astrology as well as just the Jupiter Saturn conjunction and how that 
kind of time scale correlates to these different events in human history and what we can learn from from those things. Um, I, I want to talk about the possession of the equinoxes because this is another measure of time that is crucial to understanding you know, where the stars are and also how we determine whether there's two different ways of reading astrology, right? So the, the solar astrology and side reel. Right. So, I mean, I'm not sidereal. Yes. Okay. So, uh, how did, how did the procession of the equinoxes and, uh, Ptolemy, how did, how did those few things connect into how astrology was interpreted later? So, um, so we talked about the Jupiter Saturn conjunctions, right? And those happen every 20 years. Now, they happen in specific patterns of the zodiac in periods that are about 200 years. They go through this whole cycle in like about 800 years. So you're talking about these fascinating long time periods. But there's no time period in astrology longer than the precession of the equinoxes. And that is about 26,000 years. And so what we're talking about really is the age of Aquarius. This is related to the precession of the equinoxes. So you have an astrological age, which um, lasts about uh, 2,000, 2,100 years. Now, what does this even mean? And you hit the nail on the head that there's actually this sort of fundamental split in what sort of astrology you want. Is the most important thing in your astrology the sun, right? Is it, are we, are we setting our zodiac signs by the, you know, spring equinox, uh, and this this is how it's tradition. This is how it's usually done today, you know that the 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 zodiac is usually begins in Aries, and we say that Aries begins with the spring equinox. Um, you know, Capricorn is the the winter solstice, etc. Um, but it didn't used to be that way, of course. Um, in ancient times, the this was all done by the constellations from which the zodiac signs take their name. And so, what's going on is that. Um, we know that the earth is spinning once a day around its axis. It's also spinning once a year around the sun, but like a, uh, like a wobbly top, it's also sort of, uh, you know, wobbling around as it's doing these motions. It's, it's wobbling very slowly such that, you know, um, like Polaris, the North star isn't always exactly above the earth's axis rotation. It, it moves over thousands of years. Now, from an astrological point of view, this comes into play because uh, if you were to ask what constellation is the sun in on the day of the spring equinox, well, it turns out that today, uh, on the precise day of spring equinox, when there's exactly 12 hours of night, 12 hours a day, the sun is located in the zodiac constellation of Pisces, Pisces the fish. Mm-hmm. Now, um, and, and, and if you were to ask this question year after year, it would, it would be Pisces, Pisces, Pisces. But it turns out that over long time scales, where the sun is on the precise day of spring equinox is actually traveling through all of this, all of the stars in the sky or all of the zodiac Mm -hmm. constellations. In fact, the reason we have the zodiac constellations is because these are the const, these are the stars that the sun touches in its yearly orbit. So they're significant because they interact with the sun or that the, the sun travels through them. Um, and so that does that once a year, but over this longer time frame, and I know this is complicated, but over this longer time frame, where it is in the spring equinox is changing. So this led to this, uh, so two things. One, it's really astounding how early this was discovered. 
This was discovered in, you know, maybe the year uh, 130 BC. And the, the astronomer who's credited with discovering this is, you know, a, the Greece's most famous astronomer, Hipparchus. And if you think about it, how can you even, you know, you need this baseline of hundreds of years worth of precise astronomical measurements to even know that there's a small thousand year motion of the stars. And so this sort of just is a testament to how carefully ancient astronomers were keeping records. I think it's also a testament to, to you know, Hipparchus's sort of leap of genius, because I would think if you looked at your predecessor's uh, numbers and saw that they were sort of systematically off, you had two choices. One, you could just assume that they were wrong, um, and that they weren't very careful. Mm-hmm. Or you could assume, as he did, that actually this is a real effect, um, that this is, these are actually moving, these stars are actually sort of moving very slowly in, in this sort of configuration as they're seen on the equinox. Now, um, so, so right, this, this introduces what I consider to be uh, astrology's first existential crisis. Hmm. What are you going to do when people realized very early on that, um, you know, these constellations that people had associated with spring, summer, winter, etc., um, were not permanent. You know, Aries, the, the, the spring sign, uh, or Aries, the spring constellation, isn't always, the sun isn't necessarily in it in spring. Um, you know, it's been moving uh, significantly. So you have this split then between zodiac constellations, which refer to the signs, or sorry, zodiac constellations, which refer to the stars, and then the zodiac sign, which is a much more abstract concept, which is measuring, let's say, space as uh, determined by by the sun in its um, apparent motion around the earth, starting from the seasons. Now, what I find interesting is that this didn't really lead to an existential crisis in astrology, that astrologers um, adopted what we know as the solar zodiac, this idea that that um, we're going to have this divorce between our zodiac signs and our zodiac constellations happened very early. So people will argue about it today, but there was really no argument in, you know, in the ancient world. They, they said, no, 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 the sun is the important thing. The seasons are the important thing. If you are an Aries, it's because, you know, you're born in spring. Um, now, in a sense, people, um, you know, sidereal or star-based astrology plays a fairly minor role in history. Now, that's not true in Indian astrology, but that's another story that I'm going to um, lead to one side. Mm-hmm. But what I would say is that sidereal astrology, star-based astrology, um, sort of comes back into fashion uh, in the 20th century. And again, astrology in the 20th century is a very different animal than than astrology had been in the past. And it's because people realized that there was this concept of this changing of uh, astrological ages and that we were about to complete the age of Pisces and enter into the age of Aquarius. Now, similar to Jupiter-Saturn conjunctions, there's one common theme here. And the common theme here is that in every age, people are convinced that they live on the precipice of an important change and an important dawning of a new age. Now, in the 20th century, you know, you it could plausibly be argued that, um, right, the, 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 the sun as it's traveling around the, you know, 
because of the precession of the equinoxes, was going to transfer from the constellation of Pisces into the constellation of Aquarius. And so there's developed this fascinating theory, which you don't see in ancient astrology, where um, the constellation that the sun is in during this precessionary motion over thousands of years actually determines the character of the age. And so you get this wonderful theory of how you know, thousands of years ago, we were in the age of Taurus. And this is sort of corresponds with the sort of bull worshiping civilizations Mm -hmm. that um, as the precession moves uh, into the, you know, the spring equinox moves into Aries, the constellation, um, Aries, the ram, and that this is actually uh, signifying the the Hebrew covenant, the covenant of Abraham, you know, where the the ram is, you know, Abraham uh, ends up sacrificing a ram instead of Isaac, uh, this is somehow indicative of the of the of the of the Jewish the advent of the Jewish covenant. Then, of course, for the last two thousand years, we've been in the age of Pisces. When, of course, the fish is a Christian symbol, and and it sort of makes sense that this was the principal sort of spiritual step along humans humanity sort of spiritual evolution was the Christian gospels. Again, this is a story that's told um, sort of in the late 1800s and, and then increasingly in the, uh, in the 20th century. And, but what's in, what people love about the story isn't the past. What people love about the story is the idea that we are on the cusp of a new age and that this age was going to be the age of Aquarius and that, you know, all of these sort of, sort of dark things uh, of our past, you know, war, ignorance, etc. We were about to enter a more spiritually enlightened age. And, you know, this idea, you know, really, uh, you know, colors, uh, you know, so much of the, the, the sort of transcendental movements of the, of the you know, 20th century and, and today. And the whole idea, I mean, the term new age is, of course, not, not new. Nothing is. There's nothing new under the sun, as they, as, sure. as they say. Um, but, you know, the, the, the idea of the new age um, absolutely takes its idea from, from this astrological idea that, you know, the sun will enter into Aquarius, the constellation, not the zodiac sign. Um, and, and this will bring, you know, sort of a new, a new sort of set of spiritual um, covenant between, you know, man and nature, et cetera. Now, it has often been pointed out, um, Carl Sagan used to point this out repeatedly, that you, you know, the age of Aquarius, you can't really pick and choose, right? Like the age of Aquarius is a, is a star-based notion, a sidereal astrology notion, whereas, you know, the horoscopes you read in the paper are sun-based astrology. You know, you can't, you know, you gotta, you gotta have one or the other. They're, they're actually sort of incompatible because again, uh, the zodiac sign is very different from the zodiac constellation. Uh, and, 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 and it's true. And I agree with this. You kind of have to choose, you know, just for the sake of insistence, you have to choose one or the other. Now, one of the fun things I do in my book is, um, using sort of basic astronomy, you know, and precession and, and sort of some, I, I myself try to compute when the age of Aquarius will begin. Um, you know, again, just trying to compute when the sun will, uh, on the moment of spring enter into the constellation of Aquarius. And so I'm actually trying to pull up the the precise date <laughs> that I computed. Again, this is, this computation was, was mainly just a, as a lark, just for fun. But it sort of shows you some of the things you have to think about when you're talking about these things. But uh, let's see. Uh, let's let's say, let's see. Sorry, I'm on one page off. Um, okay. August 8th, 2252, which is a Sunday. So of all of the... Uh, of all of the uh, est- estimates or predictions for when the age of Aquarius will be will begin, that's mine. August eighth, twenty two fifty 
2252. Take that one to the bank. Huh. I mean, there's, there's so much information here. And I, I think that's one of the things that I love about your book is that you sort of weave it all into a, a coherent story that you give uh, you know, a pattern and, and you, you make it make sense. You know, it's, it's easier to understand when you can track the, the historical significance of all of these, you know, connections and patterns that we like to make so much and, and then look at, you know, how it was used as a science and who was using it and how they developed it. What I found curious is, was that you said at the beginning, I mean, forgive me if I misquote you, but you said that you started this as a skeptic and it didn't change your opinion either way about astrology as a science, even though you went through all this data, you found the connections, you wrote about it, but it, it didn't, it didn't alter your opinion about its usefulness as a science. Um, okay. So let me, you know, again, just to put all my cards on, on, on the table, I, you know, began this simply as an exercise in, 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 I find this topic fascinating. And, uh, you know, I think like a lot of your listeners, I have a deep seated, um, you know, I, wonder and a wonder in the universe is, is, you know, one of my motivations. And I've always liked, um, you know, reading metaphysical texts and just kind of wanting to know what else is out there. Now, um, but I think, and again, you know, somebody who I, I admire, Carl Sagan, you know, phrases it very well that there's this like weird marriage that you that that you need of wonder and skepticism. And, you know, maybe it's because I'm a contrarian. I, I don't I don't want to take anyone's opinion just because they say so. I, I just wanted to look at this. But, I'm, um, you know, I. Yeah, maybe my default would be that it seems unlikely, but I, I wanted to look at it and, and just see for myself. And I'm deeply sympathetic to people who look at astrology and people who look at the stars and and feel this sense that, you know, what does it take to be in phase with the universe? What does it take to be in phase with ourselves and the people around us? We all experience this all the time, that sometimes we connect and sometimes we don't. And and what what, what is it about that? Now, I think these are really deep and super interesting questions, and there's no reason not to, to look at them. Um, but... Uh, Right. I think astrology is one of these things where everything about it is fascinating. And yet, um, maybe to, to put it in a particular way, I think astrology is one of these things that is somehow uh, less than the sum of its parts. That all of the parts of astrology, in their own sense, many of them are true, right? Is there a seasonal cor you know, correlation between um, – you know, our, our lives and what we do. Yes, of course, uh, there definitely is. Uh, is there a seasonal correlation even between certain professions and, 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 um, you, you know, and, and, and the seasons? And the answer is absolutely yes. Uh, do, you know, does the sun influence, does the moon influence us? Yes, absolutely. Are the planets and their positions influencing us? That I see no evidence of. But, you know, again, these questions of uh, how do we look at the world how do we look at our place in the world? How do we use numbers and data to look at that? And in particular, how should we be wary of using numbers and data poorly or misusing numbers and data to tell us stories that we don't know? If you are interested, I think, in the deeper questions, I'm very much um, – you know, moved by the the very ancient expression, uh, you know, ars longa vita brevis. Art is long, life is short. Art not as in like 
in the art you'd see in a museum, but the but what you need to learn, the craft you need to learn is long and your life is short and why waste time um you know on 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 things which are not bearing fruit. So um I want to experience wonder in the universe, but I want to I don't want to also uh you have to have this skepticism because otherwise you're falling for anything. But just because you have a skepticism doesn't diminish your wonder. In fact, I think it trains your wonder because then when something over jumps that hurdle of your skepticism, mm-hmm. you're prepared to just be deeply, deeply moved and, and to find this true wonder. And I think that for me, writing this book was such a labor of love because all of these questions, all of these historical characters, all of these topics and how you analyze them, I, I just think are so fascinating. And I love to be able to spend time doing it. And I hope that all of your listeners, again, whether you're deeply into astrology or whether you think it's bunk, you will uh, take the time to wade through this book. And, and, and I hope that that just sort of love and sense of fun and sense of wonder will, will come across too. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I really appreciate that answer because I, in the same regard, hold some level of skepticism about how much a planet in the sky can affect my life because then it says, you know, are we, are we connected to this system of fate? You know, and, and then if we are, you know, then it begs the question that perhaps I'm not in control of my life in some way. Right. So, you know, I, I, I am a little bit puzzled by this and I, I take, you know, a grain of salt with, with all things. So something that you do in the book was that you looked at different judges and you looked at used, uh, statistical inference test and you looked at their zodiac signs and their personalities what did you find out what was the conclusion of looking at you know these zodiac signs and these judges was there i mean clearly there there was a pattern right i mean what did you notice so one thing i think is fun about astrology is um it's you know it's one of the few opportunities that people have to actually examine their beliefs in uh, a rigorous way. And, um, you know, because I, I maintain, you know, pe- people, especially, you know, scientific people, they they look down on astrology because it's just a superstition or there's nothing behind it. But I maintain that uh, most people hold most of their opinions based on nothing but more than just a belief. And you hear this every day when you, you know, all you have to do is have a conversation about politics or economics. And, you know, it's just based on it's just based on opinion. It's not based on fact. Whereas, you know, astrology, there's actually mathematical ways you can answer these questions. And so one of the questions to me was, is there a correlation between having a particular profession or a particular personality type and, and having a certain zodiac sign, a certain sun sign? And now what's fun about this is that you can simply collect the dates. And what I wanted to teach in the book is that there's a, a, a very basic statistical test that you can do to, to, to look at whether or not this is a meaningful correlation. So um, with the case of the, the Supreme Court justices, I was like, well, okay, historically, you know, traditionally, Libras uh, are associated with judges. You know, it's got the scales. And this is true both in modern times and in, in, in ancient times. And so if you simply look at the Supreme Court justices and, and plot out, um, make a, a bar chart or, or what's called a histogram of um, their zodiac signs, you can see uh, there's a, a strong preponderance, not of Libras, but of Pisces. And so the question is, well, what does this mean? And so what I sort of try to walk through in the book is that although it looks like there's a, 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 a preponderance of Pisces, from a statistical point of view, 
It's not. It actually um, is exactly what, you know, in alignment with what you expect if you just roll a 12-sided die. I don't know how many of your listeners, uh, you, you know, play Dungeons & Dragons or whatnot, but your, your traditional 12-sided die that you get at a game store. Uh, a result like the one I show for the Supreme Court justices is, is perfectly normal. However, that doesn't mean that's the end of the story. Using the same test, right, we can ask, well, what about other professions? And so I was a little bit surprised to discover this, but it turns out, and again, I think it's important for people to, you know, especially, uh, let's say, people who are uh, category or knee-jerk opposed to astrology, there are actually professions where there is a very statistically significant correlation with zodiac sign and whether you're a member of that profession. And it turns out that this is uh, seen most frequently in professional sports. And so I gave an example of the most extreme case, which is professional hockey, where there is under any statistical test you could ever use an undeniable uh, uh, preference for um, Capricorns and 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 Aquarii and Pisces. And you are uh, I just had a daughter. She's a Sagittarius. If you're Sagittarius, you will probably never play professional hockey. So, you know. That's probably not in the stars for for my daughter. Now, the question is, why is this the case? Now, this has been studied for decades, and and the answer is that, well, uh, professional hockey relies on, you know, competitive, you know, feeder youth leagues, and that those youth leagues um, all had, at least traditionally, cutoff dates of January 1. And and what this meant was it caused a huge skew of um, children who, because you know, who were born around January one or shortly thereafter, because you would be playing on the same team as people who could be born in December, but you'd be like a year older, almost a full year older than them. And so, if you're if you're playing, you know, in a in a children's league or youth league, uh, you know, that extra physical size and coordination makes all the difference, and and then you, it just feeds on, and you can actually see this. Uh, across actually many professional sports. And so it's just a kind of fun thing of what happens when you actually look at the data. You don't know what you're going to find. And sometimes the results can surprise you. And that, I think, is um, you know a cool source of wonder. You, you just don't know what you're going to find. And no reason to have prejudgments, let's say, prejudices. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's so crucial because I would rather, you know, just from a scientific perspective, I think I would rather stay skeptical about whether something is valid or not, and then be pleasantly surprised that it is. And, you know, when, when I find that, then versus, you know, buying into something in an empty way or buying into something in a level of belief or, you know, or something like that. Um, you know, I'm, we're running out of time, but, um, you know, if we could wrap this all together, you know, it, I mean, I, I love that you took on such a scientific perspective when looking at this book and putting all the data together that you did and um it really paid off the the work that you did at MIT and and the physics and studying all that but you know how can we sort of wrap this together for anyone listening that might be curious about astrology and if if we could do that please so the story i wanted to tell was i wanted to recast astrology not as some you know off to the side pseudoscience. I wanted to recast it as history's most ambitious mathematical puzzle and that people have been working on it for thousands of years. And they're, what they're really working on is um, how do we use numbers? How do we use numerical data to, tell, to, to, to understand who we are and where we are? And that if you have any love of um, 
of history and you know like my heroes are copernicus and galileo and these 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 characters from the scientific revolution astrology was the engine that is driving all of this and there's there's no shame in describing this it's actually we something we should celebrate because we're all part of this human story or to use the name of your podcast the human experience and that i just think that these characters from the past and these ideas from the past are so important and so wonderful and the, the the implications they have for us today are so present and so real because if anything we are using numbers to inform our lives more than we ever have and we're essentially living let's say in almost in this astrological moment once again so uh it, it, you know it's it behooves us to you know be understand where we came from that there's that this isn't the new moment that we're actually part of this deeper deeper tradition and that there's uh you know so much so much wonder there uh driving it all that you know we need not we need not stop here yeah and you know as you said there's nothing new under the sun and if if anything you're going to find out i mean you're going to find out that it's it's happened before so it's most likely it's going to happen again and i mean i think that's where it all connects in and and that's why i thought your book was so interesting and i do highly recommend that people check this book out alex where can people go to find more about your work where can people go to find the book so the book is uh sold uh, anywhere books are sold so amazon.com barnes and noble your local bookstore uh i please buy buy it buy buy two buy three uh, get it for the whole the whole family um as for myself, uh, you know, I, I, I have a, a very sparse social media profile, which is I have none at all. But I do have a website, alexboxer.com, where uh, I talk about some of these things. And in particular, I have actually a um, an interactive horoscopic astrolabe, uh, the only one on the Internet. You can plug in your birthday. You can plug in any date that you wish. You can also just animate it and watch the planets dance in time. It's hypnotic. It's mesmerizing. And it, it – um, ties in very deeply with with stuff that's in the books. So that's alexboxer.com. And again, the name of the book is A Scheme of Heaven, The History of Astrology and the Search for Our Destiny and Data. You can get it anywhere, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, anywhere books are sold. Perfect. Guys, you heard it here. I mean, what an amazing show. And the book is called A Scheme of Heaven. And with my guest, uh, Dr. Alexander Boxer, the, the history of astrology and the search for our destiny and data. I highly recommend this book. It was a really great read. And uh, definitely check out Alex's website, The Astrolabe. Definitely interesting. Thank you guys so much for listening. Thank you guys so much for being here. I truly appreciate each and every one of you. We will be back next week with a new episode. Thank you so much. Good night.